oh, you know what? This is kind of embarrassing. Stephanie had to leave. We were going to sing one more song to really introduce our sermon. Well, I think I've got it on here. I'll just play it. And you just sing along if you know. This is our worship song to introduce today's sermon. So just sing along if you know it. Everybody now. John knows it. He's got it. Okay, maybe we're not going to add the Rolling Stones to the, uh, to the repertoire. Did I make you panic, Tim, there? Sorry about that. I warned Stephanie. I didn't warn you. Yes. All right, we're not going to add the Rolling Stones to our, much to John's dismay back there. He uh, is the first amen I've gotten out loud from him. But, uh, um, but I do think when... When Mick Jagger and Keith Richards wrote the lyrics to that song, they were on to something. I also think when Mick Jagger and Keith Richards wrote the lyrics to that song, they were on something. But that's, the, uh, that's for a different venue probably than, than today. But besides a really recognizable guitar riff, that, that song hits at something that's a really basic human thing, hang up, um, that idea that we all have this itch we can't quite scratch, this need we can't, that never quite gets satisfied. I think that is basic to the human condition, though I try and I try and I try and I try, I can't get no. Bear near near satisfaction, right? It's elusive. I, stay, I say things like this all the time, plan to hear it some more if you stick around here. But this is what we are all after, satisfaction. The Bible calls it by different names. Contentment is one name for it. Uh, the Hebrews called it shalom. And that usually gets translated as peace, but it's, that's not the lack of fighting. Shalom is, is fullness, wholeness, completeness. It's satisfaction. It's what we all want. But we, we just can't get it. Not for very long. We may find something that makes us feel like we've got it for just a small period of time. But then it goes away. You know, we, we try and we try and we try and we try. Things from this world, we ask them to satisfy us. It's a little bit like working in your yard or your garden. If you're, a, if you're a yard worker or a gardener, you can be dedicated. You can dive into that thing. It's so frustrating to get it just right. And either you never get there, you feel like giving up, or you, you lose the time it takes to do it, or if you ever do get there where it just looks perfect, wait about two days. 
right? And you walk back in there and the weeds have taken over and there's a zucchini the size of your leg in there that you have missed. Can I get an amen? That's what it's like trying to find satisfaction in this world. It's very unsatisfying. We pick something, we dive into it, and either the goal that we've set that we think will make us satisfied, either we are unsatisfied because we never reach it, or we reach it and realize it didn't satisfy. Or we realize I was driving so hard to get this thing that satisfies me in this little area of my life that I turn around and look at the other areas of my life and that took such a toll and such a high cost from the rest that now I'm unsatisfied every place else. And this is not, this part anyway, this is not an exclusively Christian message. You don't have to be a Christian to understand this. It's a human message. When I was preparing for this sermon and realized this was going to be the title, I googled um, a couple of phrases. Why we all want satisfaction, and I googled why I always want more in life. And you should have seen the scads, the barrels of articles and websites and even whole companies that were dedicated to helping people feel better about this. One suggested that what you really need is friends where you work. That would, then you'll feel satisfied. Another suggested, and almost I didn't, none of these are Christian organizations or articles. Um, one said, what you really need is something that you're passionate about. Dive into that and let everything else go. Then you'll feel satisfied. Another was titled, Why We're So Materialistic Even Though It Doesn't Make Us Happy. My favorite article had this long title. By favorite, I meant I found it the most interesting. I disagreed with the premise, but it was this. It said, the curse of too much, why most people never live their dreams and what to do about it. So it's an article that purports to tell you how to live your dreams. And the too much it's talking about is not we have too much money. Its premise was, We try to do too many things to help us feel like we want to feel contented, satisfied, shalom. And and the premise was, find one thing, sort of uh, downgrade everything else in your life, and you just make one thing your passion, and that will help you feel satisfied. And, well, I wrote some bullet points down. Listen to these. Right from this article, he said, we everybody knows we can't get this. This author writes, we think we need more food, so we overeat. We think we need more space, so we buy too big of a home. We think we need more things, so we overspend. We think we need more money, so we overwork. We think we need more freedom, so we wind up alone. Now, this article didn't have the answer, but it was all over the problem. This guy's answer, by the way... (laughs) He was dedicating his life. He was going to make enough money to where he could move to Italy and spend a year in Italy without working. And that was his sole purpose, and he was going to be satisfied in that. I want to read the sequel to where either he doesn't make enough money and he winds up unsatisfied, or he moves to Italy and the, the, the trip is unsatisfying, or he does the whole year and it's wonderful and he runs out of money and comes back home, and guess what? He's right back where he started doesn't have the answer, but he's all over the problem. 
because it's a universal problem. We all know it. And by the way, this is not a new problem. This is not a uniquely American problem. This is a really old problem, and it's universal to the human condition. Here's how I know that. In his very first bit of teaching, we're studying the book of Matthew, and we began what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, the first time Jesus begins to teach in the book of Matthew, right at the very beginning... He says, there's only one kind of person who will ever be satisfied. That's Matthew 5, verse 6. He knew that's what even his audience was really after. We began the Sermon on the Mount last week. This is Matthew 5. You want to have your Bible open. This is our scripture passage. It's all, the whole thing's printed on the front of the bulletin. Um... We started the Sermon on the Mount last week. We're going to be in it a long time. It's big. And at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount are these sayings of Jesus that are called usually the Beatitudes, which is just from a Latin phrase. It's just, it means the blessing sayings. Okay, there's these statements that start, blessed are the, blessed are those. Uh, those are the Beatitudes. And, and when... We hashed these out and defined them last week. If you weren't here, if you'd like to listen to that, go to our website, imperialberean.org, and you can, you can download um, last week's sermon. I would invite you to, to listen to that, but I will help us understand at least a little bit of what we talked about so that you'll understand today. But the, what these are, when, when Jesus said someone's going to be blessed of God, here's what he means. The blessed person is somebody whom God will congratulate, whom God will increase their joy, improve their circumstances, make them what we would call more fortunate. And in the Beatitudes, this is mostly a future occurrence, the blessing. Blessing is something that will happen to someone who is this kind of person today. And the Beatitudes, in fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount, is a picture of what a person will look like, what you will look like, what I will look like, if we are submitted to Jesus as our King. If He's calling the shots in our life, we will look like the Sermon on the Mount in general, and specifically today, these first four foundational Beatitudes. We're going to spend three weeks on these things. This is the second week because they are so foundational. I mentioned last week, I'm more and more convinced the more I study these, that if we don't have the concepts down that Jesus is describing here, this is why he started with these four things. First thing he ever taught is Matthew's gospel. Is that if we don't have these four things down, I'm not sure we're redeemed. That's how important they are. We're not saved. So I wanted to slow down and make sure we have these uh, clearly. And, and I want you to know that these are a description of one kind of person. One kind of person that has multiple characteristics, and he or she will receive one blessing that has multiple characteristics. We'll talk about the blessings next week, but if you lay them out and just read the blessings, it's eternal life. It's heaven. It's what it is. And the reason that's really important to understand is because we will tend to read these Beatitudes, especially the ones we'll get to next week, 
these two, though, we read them like a menu. We want to pick and choose. Okay, poor in spirit, no thank you. Sometimes I mourn, can't help that. I'll do that. I'll take a little bit of hungry and thirsting for righteousness, and I'm going to take a pass on being meek. But I'll have half of it. And that surely will be enough. That doesn't work that way. In fact, I think if, we don't, if you don't have one, you probably don't have them all. They're a package deal. Now this week what I want to do is talk about two ways that we misapply these foundational characteristics. We. You're going to get your toes stepped on today. I got mine stepped on studying this. And misery loves company, so I'm giving it to you. Uh, Two ways that we try to apply these things incorrectly. I want you to be aware of them so you can see it for what it is when it's in your life. Before we do, I just quickly want to um, redefine or re-explain. This is kind of last week's sermon, but it's important for us to know. Um, Jesus said first, the blessed person is poor in spirit. Matthew 5, verse 3. Um, what that means, uh, somebody, if somebody was poor in Jesus' day, they were destitute, penniless, unable. They didn't have the means to go get what they needed to survive. If someone's poor in spirit, that means spiritually, I don't have what I need to get from God what I need to survive spiritually, eternally. I'm penniless, I'm bankrupt before God. Jesus said, this is why he starts here, that the kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to anybody. It doesn't understand they'll never earn the first bit of it. They're, they're broke, they're destitute before God. That creates, in verse 4, a sense of mourning. When I realize I'm broke before God, I'm penniless before God, I could never give to him anything that he would see as worthy to accept me. It creates a sense of mourning in me that I don't have what I need. And then in verse 5, Jesus said, the blessed person is meek. And this is really interesting because what meekness is, what this means is a meek person understands that he is unable or he has to be unwilling to try and do anything to improve upon his poor condition. I can't even start to fix what's wrong. So, so far, uh, if I'm poor in spirit, I'm more and I'm meek. I understand I'm penniless before God. Um, it breaks my heart. I need what he has, and I can't even begin to try and get it of my own accord. And then verse 6, the fourth beatitude, Jesus said, the blessed person is a person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And that's the person who will be what? Satisfied. That's the person who gets what we all want. And the point of last week's sermon was I, I outlined what I think is, is a catch-22 most well-meaning people find themselves in when they understand, I'm a sinner. I'm broke before God. I can't do anything to get what I need from Him. The logical, or I understand I'm a sinner and I'm, I've fallen way short of His righteous standards. The logical thing to do next would be, well, I'm going to fix my unrighteousness. I'm going to be better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to quit these bad habits. I'm going to start these good habits. I'm going to fix my life. 
then I won't feel so bad about my unrighteousness. The problem is, as soon as someone does that, they violate the first three Beatitudes. As soon as I start to grow my righteousness, I'm no longer poor in spirit. Because I'm way better than I used to be. I don't mourn my condition presently. I just mourn who I used to be. I was sad back then. And I'm certainly not meek because I'm finally doing something about my spiritual condition. But the other side of the catch-22 is Jesus very clearly says if there's no hunger and there's no thirst for righteousness, that's not the blessed person. And you can't get no bare near near satisfaction. I don't have that in my notes, but you might hear that again. I'm just, just saying. Now, last week, from a bird's eye point of view, from a salvific point of view, the only answer to that catch-22, how do I pursue righteousness without violating the first three um, beatitudes? Is the righteousness that I must pursue is something I have to understand I cannot ever achieve. I pursue a righteousness that has to be given. When I place my faith in what Christ did at the cross, and He becomes my Savior, uh, the coolest transaction in the history of the universe takes place. My sin was on Him, and then God takes His perfect righteousness and puts it on me. I didn't earn it. The only reason I got it is I understood I can't earn it. And a mustard seed of faith saves a poor sinner who can't do anything about his condition. Okay, but, however, there has got to be a way in my life where the rubber meets the road. There's got to be a way that I can hunger and thirst after, pursue personal righteousness, personal holiness, purity, moral improvement, whatever you want to call it, getting better, sinning less. There has to be a way that I can do that without violating the first three Beatitudes. How do I know? Because the Bible is full of places where we're told to do that. Both Testaments. It's not just an Old Testament thing to obey the law and be holy for I am holy. Peter wrote that at the end of the New Testament also. And so what I want to look at today, finally at the end I want to get to how to do that correctly how to pursue hunger and thirst after righteousness without losing our poorness of spirit, our mourning and our meekness. But before we do that, like I said, I've got to show you two ways we do this wrong. We do it incorrectly. And it has implications uh, for our lives. We misapply these concepts. If you've been a Christian for very long, I'm going to guess you have come to the realization that goes something like this. Excuse me one sec. You've come to a realization, man, I'm not pursuing righteousness the way I used to. I don't like, I don't care as much as I used to. Anybody been to that point where I'm not hungering and thirsting after Christ and his righteousness the way I have at another season in my life? I think I know why we get there in general. You know why it is? Because we try to satisfy ourselves. What we're after is the last word on that screen. We want to be satisfied. 
And when we try to self-satisfy, when we try to satisfy ourselves, we don't try to get satisfaction the way Jesus says it actually occurs. Does that make sense? Our self-satisfaction saps our hunger and our thirst for righteousness. And I want to outline for you today two ways that most of us at different times go about self-satisfaction that saps our hunger and thirst for righteousness, even though we know that's the only way, the only chance we have at satisfaction. These two ways are going to seem very opposite, and in some ways they are, but they're two different ways of doing the same thing. Getting satisfaction apart from Jesus Christ and His righteousness. All right, so two kinds of self-satisfaction. The first one, just my made-up title for it, I'm going to call it Obvious Self-Satisfaction. Obvious self-satisfaction is, I guess, the easiest to see, the easiest to diagnose, but it's not always all that obvious, so maybe it's a bad title. But here's what it is. The person who is stuck in obvious self-satisfaction is the person, I'll wait on the screen for a minute. This is the person who is simply maybe even ignoring Christ and righteousness and right and wrong altogether. This is where most of the world is, and they just know, I'm not satisfied, but out there somewhere, there is satisfaction. And if I find the right thing and pursue it correctly, and I work hard enough, I'll get satisfied. It's out there. I just got to find the right thing and pursue it correctly. And we, you know the things we use to try to self-satisfy. Um, we use money. We use material things. We use success. We use recognition we use popularity. We use um, attention from the opposite sex or romance. We use power. We use travel. We use excitement. Lots and lots of things. Even though, if we would back up for a second, I asked you, do you think that will ever satisfy you? We probably would say, well, no. What this does, really... This method of self-satisfaction, it's really not about satisfaction because we never get satisfaction. But it substitutes ambition and excitement for satisfaction. It substitutes ambition and excitement for satisfaction. It never leads to actual satisfaction, rest, contentment. It just feels, i got to be doing something. And there's this feeling that if I keep working hard at whatever this is, maybe I'll accidentally get there. And if it doesn't work, I'll just try something else. Now, here's why I say this is a misapplication of the first four Beatitudes. Check this out. This person, and and this can be you, this can be me at different times, right? But this person can very much believe he's doing the first three Beatitudes He's just not doing so good on the fourth beatitude. For an example, I'll use somebody that has no interest in right, wrong, whatever. I'm just doing this stuff out here. Um, The Christian version of that is someone who pursues what I think will satisfy me, and I just try to be good while I'm doing it. But it's the same thing. I'm trying to self-satisfy by chasing this stuff that's not Christ or or His righteousness. But... This person can think, 
Well, I'm poor in spirit. I know I'm a sinner. I'm doing that one. Second, that kind of breaks my heart. I wish I was righteous before God. And third, I know that I'm meek. I know there's nothing I could ever do to make God accept me. Now, they're really not doing those three. Because when I'm poor in spirit, when I understand my greatest need is something I don't have, it'll make me hungry for that need. Um, I'm, really, I'm really not mourning my lack of righteousness. I'm mourning my lack of satisfaction. And I'm really not meek because I'm taking action to find satisfaction that I really crave outside of my relationship with Christ. But they can seem like I'm doing those three. And the problem with this one is there's no, the apparent problem is there's never a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. There's never real repentance. There's no turning from, I used to pursue all of this stuff to satisfy me. I'm going to change and pursue Christ and His righteousness for satisfaction. I got the first three, but it's that fourth one I just can't do. This is that feeling some of us know where we say, I understand the first three Beatitudes, but my satisfaction has to come outside of church. My satisfaction is out there. I'll just try to do all, pursue what will make me satisfied and try to be good. You know what Jesus would say to that person? He would say, you can't get no satisfaction. Now, maybe that's Mick Jagger, not Jesus. I get those two confused all the time. Jesus would say, child, satisfaction is not out there. You are on a never-ending treadmill. You're going to try and try and try and try, but you can't get there. It's just, you're just going to have to hop from treadmill to treadmill to treadmill. And you're probably going to leave brokenness and victims in your wake. It's going to cost you a lot of pain and a lot of hurt before you realize it's not even worth trying. According to Jesus, the first three, if I'm poor in spirit, I realize I can't stand before God, but I really need to stand before Him. It produces that sense of mourning. That's my greatest need. I need to be righteous enough to stand before Him or I'm doomed and I'm meek. I know I can't do anything. It should produce a hunger and a thirst like nothing else. That is what I need more than anything else. That's why Jesus called it a hunger and a thirst. It's soul level, base level, more than anything else. I need to stand before that God. And if I never have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, have I really ever grasped my poorness of spirit? That's why this kind of obvious self-satisfaction, it's, it's dangerous, it's scary, because I have no doubt there, there are people who feel like, I've said these three things, but I've never done any of the fourth one. It is not your pursuit of righteousness that saves you. It's not. It's faith in Christ alone, period. But if I've never felt a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, 
Have I really been poor in spirit? Now, the second kind of self-satisfaction. First one, obvious self-satisfaction. I know I'm a sinner. Um, I know I can't do anything about that before God. I just don't pursue the righteousness. The second kind of self-satisfaction is the opposite. I'm going to call this hidden self-satisfaction just because it's maybe a little bit more difficult to see. It looks a lot more religious. It can even look Christian, though it's not. And this is the person who tries uh, to do the fourth one and ignores the first three. This is the person who has realized, I am broken and penniless before God. I'm a sinner and I need saved. I'm unrighteous. That's my problem. And so the fix to the problem is, and I've mentioned this before uh, in this little series, I'm going to do better. I'm going to make some changes. They identify stuff in their life that needs changed, and they're going to turn from that and do better. And that is good. That's repentance. It's good. This is a person who maybe enters into some accountability, and I I recognize this stuff needs to change. Will you help me with that? But... Because they ignore the first three, here's what begins to happen. Without even realizing it, and I probably never say this out loud, I look back at who I used to be before I made all these changes. Or I look out there at people who haven't made those changes, and I start to get our magic word, last word on the screen, I start to get a little bit satisfied, a little bit full, a little bit comforted, in the changes I've made, in the improvement I've done, in the growth I have achieved. Now, by definition, do you know what I'm describing? That's self-righteousness. I mean, it's the definition, right? Um, Through my repentance, through my discipline, through my hard work, through my willpower... I quit this, 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 and this. And I did that myself. I mean, God helped. And I begin to get a little bit comforted and satisfied in my righteousness that came through my effort and my willpower and my discipline. And why can't other people have this same thing that I have? And when someone gets to that point, at least three dangerous things begin to happen. And this is where you need to search your heart and soul because none of us walking in here would call ourselves self-righteous because that's an ugly word. But three things begin to happen. First, first sign I've become a little bit self-righteous. I must begin to ignore and deceive myself about my little unrighteousnesses. I concentrate on all the sins I don't commit. I got my list of things other people do that I don't, but I necessarily deceive myself about the sins I do commit. I haven't confessed anything in a very long time, not to God and certainly not to anybody else. You know why? My comfort comes from my righteousness. 
You know how uncomfortable it is to confess your sin? If you get your comfort and your satisfaction from your righteousness, it will not do to admit, admit unrighteousness. That's why then the second thing that starts to happen when I've become a little bit self-righteous is when something happens that I have to admit, it crushes. It just throttles me and floors me and destroys me because my comfort and my satisfaction was in my goodness. This is why when I, begin, when I get self-righteous, and I do, I am very hard to approach when you're going to tell me I'm doing something wrong. You don't know anybody like that, do you? You know why it's hard to tell a self-righteous person when they're, when they're messing up, when they're doing something wrong? Maybe you can answer it now. Because their comfort comes in their moral superiority. My comfort comes in my goodness. So here's what I do. If you tell me one thing I'm doing wrong, I'll tell you 64 things you've done wrong. So that even if this charge sticks, you're way wronger than I am. And I can still be comforted. Because my comfort comes in my achieved righteousness. Which brings us to the third thing that happens when I become self-righteous. And this, this kind of self-satisfied person, well, their circle gets small, I heard somebody say recently. I get very isolated. Here's why. On one hand, I cannot stomach people who don't achieve my level of righteousness. If they, if they are in sins that are on the list of stuff I don't sin... I can't stand to be around that person. They don't have as much in the righteousness bank account as I have. But I also can't stand to be around very many people that do have my level of righteousness. You know why? Because they might point out other things that I won't confess. So I can't be around the people who will tell me what I am doing wrong. And I can't be around people who do more things wrong than I do. And my circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, do you know how we wind up there? When we lose the first three Beatitudes. When I lose my poorness of spirit, read verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Are. It's who I am. It's not something I do. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's who is a co-owner of the kingdom. And it's a continual thing. When I get satisfied in my own righteousness that I have done, I'm not poor in spirit anymore. My, my righteousness bank account isn't empty. I'm solidly middle class in the righteousness department. I can tell you any number of people who are Lower than me, less than me in the, on the morality scale. You know that's a lie, right? Jesus, that's why he started. His first teaching in Matthew is you're not the blessed person unless you understand you are poor in spirit. Like I said last week, broke is broke, man. 
How can one poor, penniless beggar look at another poor, penniless beggar and feel prideful and superior? I lose my poorness of spirit. I no longer mourn my current spiritual condition. I did not anymore. And I'm not meek because I, for one, have started to do something about my unrighteousness unlike some people. We have to always remember this is a four-part package deal. Do you know in eternity, when I'm perfected and no longer even have a sin nature, couldn't sin if I wanted to and wouldn't want to, I will still be poor in spirit with an understanding for all of eternity that there is not one thing in me that should allow me to be here. This was given to me. I got to carry that around with me every single day. Those are the two ways, well, two of the three. We're going to do another one next week. Those are two ways we misapply these four Beatitudes. We either try to major on the first three and ignore the fourth, or we try to major on the fourth one and ignore the first three. How do we do this correctly? All right, first, like I just mentioned, I have to continually remind myself of the reality of my poorness of spirit. I have to mourn what I can't achieve, which means I have to allow myself to see my unrighteousnesses. I have to stay meek, understanding there's nothing I am doing that's building any kind of balance before God. The stuff in my righteousness account that's by my effort is filthy rags. As, as far as it goes in paying God down on my debt, those things done to his glory can bring reward more on that later. So I remind myself that this righteousness I am pursuing is something I can never grasp. And you know what's crazy about this whole thing? Jesus said the person who gets satisfied is the person who chases something he can't get. As long as that thing he's chasing that he can't get is, Jesus, is righteousness. I can't get it, but I pursue it. All right, so how, how do I get satisfied by chasing a righteousness I can never obtain? Here's number two. Here's what I do. I remember if I know I'm poor in spirit and I know, God, you, your level of righteousness is what I need and you give it to me, then I'm going to latch on to Jesus. And I understand I cannot leave you for five seconds to go try and do this on my own. Because if I let go of you and just try to pursue what I want to pursue and be good while I'm doing it, I will fail. I will either build this fake righteousness that doesn't do anybody any good and ignore my sin, or I will fall off the pickle boat, as my wife likes to say it, and I will just fall back into old patterns of sin and immorality. So I, I just hold on to Jesus like, oh, I can't let you go. I can't do this on my own. I, your righteousness is the only thing that will ever satisfy me. And then here's what starts to happen. Because I don't leave Jesus because I'm so desperate. If I leave and try this on my own, I'm walking away from the only righteousness that works. 
And what happens if I, if I hold on to him and I do life with him, he will start, his righteousness will start to leak out through me. And here's the way it will work. He'll say, uh, while wow, you're holding on to me, all right? Uh, it reminds me of, you remember when Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord in Genesis and he didn't let go till you blessed me? That's what we do with Jesus. I'm going to hang on. I'm not letting you go. And he's all right, but if you're going to hang on to me, there's some things that's got to change. And he'll say, okay, Maxwell, I want you to hold on, but you've got to let that go. You've got to change that. You've got to strip that away, and you've got to start doing that. Okay, anything, but I'm not letting go of you because you're my, my hunger and my thirst is for a righteousness I can't do. I've got to have you. And then when those changes happen, he gets all the credit. I didn't do any of it. I just, I just held on. And then an interesting thing starts to happen. Suddenly when I look around at these people who are stuck in sins, I no longer sin. They'll know I don't look down on them for their sin. And listen to me. It's not that I just say I don't look down on them. I really don't. And they can tell. And it makes me approachable. Because I'm just like, man, you're just one more helpless, poor soul just like me. We used to say around here, and we probably will again soon, stay in the boat with Jesus. Get in the boat with Jesus. The only attractive thing when you're rowing around in a boat is if you see someone else is only as desperate as you are. Nobody wants to get in the USS self-righteousness that you're rowing around. Nobody wants in that boat. All they see, all they see is the sins you won't admit and your moral superiority that turns their stomach. None of our level of, level of righteousness that we can achieve is attractive. It's not. But when Jesus is leaking through the cracks in our clay jar and people see somebody who, how can you be accepting of me even though you don't sin the same sins I sin. Let me tell you about the one that I'm holding on to who accepts me even though he never sinned a single sin I sinned. He took my sin upon himself. He paid the whole price for it. And now he lets me follow him. And now the last thing and I'll let us go. And there's a kind of satisfaction that is available to us right now. And you know what it is? When I'm holding on to him, I realize he's really holding on to me. And, what that, and that's where my hunger and my thirst is. Here's what I start to realize. All that stuff I used to think I had to do to get satisfied, I don't have to do it anymore. <gasps> I don't have to be the perfect little angel that I pretended to be. And I don't have to fight with everybody who tells me I do something wrong. It makes it easy to confess. It makes it easy to admit when I'm wrong because my level of righteousness doesn't save me and doesn't do anything for me. I want rid of that so there's no break in my fellowship with my Lord. And every time I sin, He'll just scoop me right back up, take me right back, keep me right in that same lifeboat. And it is so satisfying and comforting to know. Like, I can't fall out of it. As long as I remember, satisfaction wasn't come anyplace else. 
and is pursue the righteousness. I can't ever grasp, but I can pursue. And it will always be given, and it will begin. His righteousness will, in little tiny doses, begin to come mine, become mine in ways that doesn't make me less poor in spirit. Pray with me. Oh, Father, we are poor in spirit. And God, I probably all of us here have been on both sides of this self-satisfaction where we have just openly pursued stuff without thinking about righteousness or right and wrong at all. And then on the other side, been in where we get to where we're kind of feeling pretty good about changes we did. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving a way to pursue righteousness that just is given by you. That's so satisfying to somebody who's poor in spirit and desperate and meek. I thank you that you are willing to allow into your kingdom people who sin sins that you would never sin. Help us to be people who understand our righteousness is given, that we might just care for other hurting, helpless people who sin in the same and in different ways than we do, but are no more or less helpless. We love you, Lord, for the unrighteousness you give, for the mercy you have had upon sinful children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.